you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. 
Well, good morning. So good, great to be uh, with you, whether you're here uh, or joining us online. Uh, my name's Andy. It's wonderful to be opening God's Word uh, this morning from 2 Corinthians. It's a fantastic book. I do want to cast your mind back, though, before we get underway to 1972, the decade of some of the greatest songwriting in the world. Carly Simon's 1972 hit, You're So Vain, You Probably Think This Song Is About You. Uh, now, I think that is one of the most amazing choruses ever written. Uh, it tells the story, so the song addresses an experience that, she, that the songwriter Carly Simon had of, of watching this, this man in a scarf walk into a party like he's walking onto a yacht and describing just how vain, conceited, self-absorbed this man is. And she concludes in one of the most amazing choruses ever penned, uh, supremely ironic, delightful satire. You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. You're so vain, ooh, you're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you, don't you? Don't you? Amazing irony, of course. Uh, now, the, the song has prompted all sorts of speculation about who this man could be. There are a few contenders. Um, but no one really knows. Look it up on Wikipedia if you're really interested. Of course, the, the paradox here, if you are one of those men who met Carly Simon in the 1970s, it would be arrogant for you to think that the song is about you. But then if you're so vain you think the song is about you, then the song is literally about you. So there we have what I'm going to call the Carly Simon paradox of you're so vain you probably think it's about you. Let's call this the Carly Simon paradox, and this is a stretch. Please work with me here, friends. This is a stretch, but I actually think that when we open a New Testament letter, right, a letter written by St. Paul or one of the other apostles to the New Testament church, we sort of have a Carly Simon paradox at work. Okay, let me explain. So these letters, what's a letter? A letter is a way of preserving or establishing a relationship between people who are separated by distance. That's why you send a DM, that's why you email, that's why you send an old-fashioned letter. Right? It's to maintain a relationship between two individuals. And Paul's letter to the Corinthians is a personal letter between people who knew each other well, Paul and the community in Corinth. It's a personal letter to maintain, repair their relationship. And so when we read this letter, we don't want to be so vain as to think this letter is about us. In fact, we don't want to be so vain as to assume this letter is to us. It's a personal letter. It's directed towards a particular group of people in the midst of a particular conflict at a particular point of time. So when we read, for instance, in another one of Paul's letters, uh, here's a good example, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul writes, when you come, bring my cloak. Okay, to Timothy. Now, when we read that in Bible study, that's not to us. Right? Paul doesn't want you to travel to the Mediterranean bringing his cloak. He's dead. He doesn't need it. All right? This is God's words for us, but it's not a letter to us. And so we need to kind of put ourselves into that situation and understand what the original writer and reader are understanding before we start applying it to ourselves. Because we do need to read it and we do need to understand what it means for us. Because while Paul's not writing to us, God has given this scripture for us, for us to read and to learn. Uh, and it's in the Bible for a reason. So we need to understand this letter which is not to us but is for us by understanding the situation being addressed carefully and drawing our principles, our conclusions, and applying it to our own situation. So it means we're going to need to spend a bit of time focusing on the situation, 
Right? Letters are situational documents. They're written in a context between two people. So what is the situation between Paul and the Corinthians? Uh, Paul, um, what's his name? Guy Mason last week, um, not Paul. Uh, he explained last week a bit of the context, but it'd be good just to recap some of those, um, that situation, because this is a little bit tricky. Um, I kind of stumbled across this um, the first couple of times I read it through. So the Corinthian church, let's start with him. They're a church which was planted by Paul. He, he, he visited Corinth, this cosmopolitan city, and he started preaching the gospel, and he stayed around long enough to see the church grow and to appoint leaders. He started this church by preaching the gospel. Um, And of course he came preaching the gospel that Jesus died for their sins and was raised to new life. So repent and believe the gospel so your sins will be forgiven and you too will be raised. Paul has devoted his entire life to this message. His entire life has been devoted to preaching this message. He's given up everything for this message about Jesus. He's given up uh, his status. He's given up his comfortable life. He's coming in constant, constant opposition, constant danger for the sake of people getting to know this Jesus. That's what Paul's life has been about. He wants people to know the life and love of Jesus, and he's willing to face anything, all sorts of constant persecution, danger, suffering. Because of course he is. Right? Why is Paul happy to be so uncomfortable so in danger for the gospel? Why is he happy to live not a very good life, objectively speaking? Because Jesus is just that important. Because the message about Jesus is so crucial for his audience to hear. I've told this story before, but one thing that's stuck with me for a long time when I was um, uh, at the end of high school, I was in a car with a friend who I don't think knew I was a Christian. She was talking to some other people in the car about her annoying Christian friends. I think I've told you this before, but it stuck with me. And she's just kind of raving about how annoying they are, constantly talking about God and inviting her to church. I'm like, really? That's interesting. (laughs) But then she said something that I've always remembered, which is, yeah, but if they stopped doing that, I'd be pretty offended. Because if you believe in Jesus and you're my friend and you don't want to tell me about Jesus, then you're not my friend. You obviously don't care about me enough to want to share this eternal life. Heaven and hell are at stake. So I guess I'd be sad if they stopped telling me about Jesus and inviting me to church. Okay, so this message about Jesus is just so important. Paul needs people to hear it, and he's willing to put everything on the line for it. He joyfully embraces suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Corinthians and all his other churches. And here's the other thing. Because the message about Jesus is just so obviously good news, just so obviously amazing and life-changing, he doesn't feel any obligation to kind of jazz it up. I see what he writes in verse 17. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. In other words, when we came, it was about the gospel, simplicity, godly sincerity. It was not about earthly wisdom. You don't need a neon sign and a smoke machine to appreciate the Mona Lisa. It just speaks for itself. In the same way, Paul doesn't need to put on a show to present the gospel because Jesus is just that compelling. He doesn't need high-profile celebrities endorsing Jesus. He doesn't need slick, clever arguments. He just needs to tell you what happened. Jesus was dead, now he's not. That's the gospel. He died for your sins. Repent and believe the gospel. It's the power of God. Like, What more do you want? 
So 2 Corinthians was written into a specific situation where the church had started to get more focused on the smoke machines and neon signs than the gospel. They were starting to wander a little bit away from Paul and his simple godly message to shinier, newer preachers, celebrity pastors with new and shinier messages who made Paul look a bit unimpressive, to be honest. And I think this is really at this particular moment in history for us. That was their deal back then. But for us, I think we have a similar thing to confront in global Christianity. Because there's a battle that rages today for the heart of the church. We have high-profile celebrity pastors available in our pockets at any point. Pastors who, frankly, fleece the sheep. Right? Who show off, try to build and show off their own wealth and cynically show that wealth as a sign of God's blessing and therefore an endorsement of their message. Look at how well-dressed I am. Look at how successful and happy I am. Believe my message, loosely connected to Jesus, and you will be too. Um, I'm sure we've mentioned this before um, in some of our sermons, but there's this amazing Instagram channel called Preachers and Sneakers, which I am mesmerized by. Basically, it was started um, in um, 2021 by a guy called Ben Kirby. Uh, Because he rolled out of bed on a Sunday morning after a very late night and slept through church. No judgment here. We've all done it. So he was feeling guilty enough that he logged onto YouTube to try to get some worship music (laughs) into him instead of church. Again, no judgment. We've all done that. And he's trying to connect with Jesus watching this YouTube worship. But all he can see are the sneakers of the worship pastor, which he knows cost almost $1,000 U.S., And something in that just clicked for him. Like, this is weird, man. I'm trying to focus on Jesus. All I can see are these ridiculously expensive sneakers worth nearly a grand US. And it made him very cranky. And he started thinking, like, is this really a good look when most people in the congregation would never dream of spending that much on a pair of sneakers you wear once? Like, is this really a good look? And so as a joke, initially, he started this Instagram channel just posting pictures, screenshots, of celebrity pastors and worship leaders wearing expensive designer shoes and clothes. Like this guy who is wearing $500 Crocs. Now, I have a couple of problems with this. <laughs> I have made it, um, this is a kind of just an important point for you to know for accountability. Guys, um, I, I've spoken to Guy Mason, he's a dear friend, and I've made it very clear to him that if I ever see him rock up to church in $500 Crocs, <laughs> Or rock up anywhere in $500 crocs. Well, actually, I can't repeat in polite company what I said to him. This is not okay for a couple of reasons. Okay, now, this whole thing started as a joke, but it soon, um, this Instagram channel channel just blew up the internet, right? Because it, it hit on something that's not just a unique, isolated incident. There is something very troubling in our celebrity culture in general in society, but when it comes into the church, it's just weird and disturbing. Want to be celebrity pastors, flaunting their wealth, flaunting their wealth. Uh, Caitlin Beatty is an American journalist. I, I, I met her once. Uh, she's written a book called Celebrities for Jesus. And it's, it's a very sobering read because she points out this disturbing pattern in Western Christianity. This disturbing pattern of celebrity pastors. 
And she defines celebrity very carefully. She says celebrity is not just being well-known, right? Because the Pope is well-known, but he's not a celebrity. A celebrity pastor is social power without proximity. It's social power without proximity. In other words, it's people who are recognized everywhere but known by nobody. It's people who exert an influence over our lives without being part of a community where we can actually have mutual love and accountability. They're people who crowds love, but no one gets close enough to be loved by them. We might feel like we have a pastoral relationship with them when we connect with them, when we hear their message. They may even have a genuine impact on our lives. They may even have been influential in us coming to the Lord, and that's, that's fine, but that relationship is all on our side. It's not a two-way relationship. And often, too often, when a celebrity pastor calls us to sacrifice, you've got to wonder sometimes, am I being called to sacrifice for Jesus and the gospel or for your ministry? There's a difference. And at its extreme, there's this culture of looking up to preachers and their wealth as not just okay, but as an example to emulate and follow and desire. Right? We look up at their worldly credentials, their wealth, their success, their image, right? on the false hope that they might share the secret to their success with us. Well, I'll tell you a secret. You know where their wealth comes from? You. That's the con. Right? They're not just like... I'll give you an example. There was this example during lockdown when everyone was watching um, live stream church. Um, this guy uh, and his wife were live on, TV, on, the, on the YouTube or live stream church. And someone came into their church while they're doing a live church service and robbed them at gunpoint. Terrible. Robbed them at gunpoint for a million dollars of jewellery which they had on. Now, we take security very seriously at Seed on a Hill. And we were very disturbed by this. And, and so we've taken some pretty significant precautions to make sure that no one's going to rob us of a million dollars of jewellery down here. Right? That you are, you're going to struggle to get a million dollars of jewellery off Reverend Mrs. Judd here, my wife. Uh, and do you know how we did that? <laughs> Very clever security, all right? We, we, we pay our ministers kind of basically comparable to a high school teacher salary, right? We just have a policy that applies across all Anglican churches just to make sure it's comfortable, it's generous even, but it, you're not going to end up with a, pastors with a million bucks worth of jewellery on. Because what's the secret to their success, these preachers? Well, I don't know. Maybe this, I don't want to judge. Maybe this guy was an early investor in Bitcoin. Possible. It could also have something to do with the fact that late last year, he was arrested on fraud charges by federal investigators who had found that he had ripped off people in his congregation thousands of dollars, including a, got 90 grand of a retiree's super fund out of her. Could have something to do with that. I'm not one to judge. Beware the pastors who are trying to fleece the flock. Now, raises a question too. Was Paul a celebrity pastor? Oh, well, he was extremely well known. He is famous. He has a Wikipedia page. He was very influential. Not a strong Instagram presence, must be said. 
but strong brand recognition across the world. So is he a celebrity pastor himself? Is he being hypocritical? Well, no. And here's the difference. His relationship with the Corinthians, it wasn't one of power without proximity. It was one of heartbreaking intimacy. He knew this church. He loved this church. He lived with this church. He bled for this church. This church broke his heart. And you can tell that just from reading this book. Is he recognizable but unknown? Is he trying to fleece them rather than pass them? Is he seeking their adoration or their transformation? Is he a persona persona or a person to them? Is he building his platform or building the kingdom? It's obvious. Just read through his letters. The Corinthians break his heart. And he cannot sleep until the relationship is restored. That's what this part of the letter is all about. And here's the point. Whether you're a Corinthian or whether you live in Melbourne or wherever you are, online, you have to decide who you're going to listen to. Who are the Corinthians going to listen to? Are they going to listen to someone based on who the messenger is or what the message is? Is it all about worldly standards or is it about the grace of God displayed in their life? Is it about boasting in $500 crocs? Or is it about boasting in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Then really that's Paul's message for them, guys. Is it going to be the crocs or the cross? That's the decision. Right? What, do you, what do you want from your pastors? Who are you going to listen to? Cross or crocs? You decide. For Paul, the choice is simple. Verse 12, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. When Paul came to Corinth, he didn't preach. um, He didn't make a big deal about himself when he preached. It wasn't about him. He certainly didn't go after their money. In fact, he tried to make sure money just wasn't even an issue. So he worked while he was preaching. He spoke passionately and powerfully. Like He's not a bad preacher, but it wasn't about how shiny the message was. It was about Jesus. It's not about him. It's about Jesus. You get that when you read Paul's words. The problem, though, and this is what 2 Corinthians is here for, the problem is that the Corinthians didn't always feel the same way about him. They lost these priorities. Verse 13, he says, we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. Now, it's kind of a funny thing to say. What he wants from them is for them to boast in him for the same reasons he boasts in them. In other words, not based on worldly boasts, but based on what truly matters. Paul's hope is that they will be proud of him the way he is proud of them. What is he proud of? Well, he's grateful for what God is doing in them. Not for how successful or wealthy or influential they are, but what God is doing in each other. That's what he wants to be proud of. That's what he wants to boast in. To look around the church and say, and say I see people being transformed by the gospel, and that is what I'm excited to see. Now, from here on in the letter, it's a little bit fiddly to read because we're, remember, reading someone else's mail. 
Paul starts to reference a really difficult conflict that has arisen in this situation. And it's a little bit like if you walk up to two people at a party and you're like, hey guys, and then you realize as soon as you're committed that they're in the middle of a really, really difficult conversation. And you just sort of like slowly back away and hope that they don't make eye contact. Right? This is kind of like us reading this letter, right? Because there's obviously a backstory to what's happening here. Um, Guy shared a little bit about this last week, as I said, but it's worth reminding us. Paul plants the church, spends time growing it up, but then he has to move away. And while Paul is gone, they start listening to the $500 croc, $500 croc wearing preachers. Right? They start listening to the fancier, influential preachers who are coming by. They start following them on Instagram. They start listening to their podcasts. They start paying the $10,000 speaker fee for them to come and visit Corinth. Right? So Paul is losing them to these celebrity pastors. And at some point, people in the church are like, why are we even listening to Paul? What does he bring? Right? He's not very relevant. His social media presence is weak. He wears country road at best. Why are we listening to this guy? And as for his message, the gospel he preaches, I don't know if it's very powerful because when I look at his life, he keeps getting shipwrecked and beaten and kicked out of cities. It's not a very powerful gospel. Right? Maybe we should be looking for a different gospel, one that leads to a happier, healthier life. So here is Paul, got a feel for the guy, whose heart breaks for this church, who shared the gospel with them, shared his life with them, deeply concerned about the direction that the church is going in listening to these celebrity pastors. But then when he tries to exercise some discipline, some gentle correction as a father to a child, tries to gently point them back to Jesus, they're saying he's not impressive enough. We're not listening to you, right? which is part of the problem. And the whole situation blows up at some point over a pastoral discipline matter. Basically, someone in the church did something, and we don't know what it was. We can guess we don't know what it was. It's mentioned, it's referred to, there's some kind of sin in the church, and Paul wants them to do something about it. But the church isn't keen. The church isn't keen because they're listening to the celebrity pastors and they don't think they need to. So Paul changes his travel plans. This is the point of this section. He changes where he's going so that he can come in person and deal with the situation. And initially, his change of plan is, okay, well, I'm going to come to you twice, on my, once on my way to Macedonia and then once on the way back because I need to sort this out in person. This can't go on. So he changes his plans. But then... Something happens. Um, pick up verse 5. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. In other words, this can't wait. I can't just write to you. I want to come straight to you. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way. Okay, so fly-by-night visit. He can't stay for long, but he needs to drop in and see what's happening because this is an emergency. But then he, he does the first bit. He drops in on the, on the way. But then he changes his plans again and decides not to come back via them on the way back from Macedonia. Why? Well, because his first visit goes mm, badly. Right? His first visit does not go well. It's hard to give and receive criticism. Right? I remember once um, trying to gently share with a friend of mine who I was doing ministry with that they didn't really take feedback very well. They didn't speak to me for two months. Sort of proved my point. Right? It's hard to receive and give feedback. It's difficult, both for the giver and the receiver. In this situation, it doesn't go well. 
It doesn't go well. He raises the issue. They take it badly. And so he cancels his second trip. Why? Verse 23, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Now, this is notable because Paul is not one to shy away from a difficult conversation. That's why he keeps on getting thrown out of cities. He's happy to speak the truth when it's needed. But he's trying to win them over. And so he just senses it's not going to go well. It's not going to be helpful for them, for him to come back again and rub salt in the wound. They need time to actually process what he said. Because he's not trying to stand up for himself. He's not trying to get it off his chest. He's not trying to wield the big stick that he could. Like he's an apostle. He wrote half the New Testament. Like he could absolutely have come in with a big stick. But he doesn't want to do that. Why? Because he cares about them too much. He wants them to grow. He wants them to change. Not that we lord it over your faith, verse 24, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. That's what he wants. He wants them to grow as Christians and stand firm. And so he decides not to turn up again. He sends a letter which we don't have. Okay, So 1 and 2 Corinthians aren't the only letters he sent to them. There's this letter which he refers to in verse 4. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. So instead of the second visit, he writes this many tears letter which didn't get copied, didn't get preserved. It was just... Let's not talk about that again. But it had its effect. It had the effect that he was looking for. In God's grace, they had time and space to reflect on what he'd said, and he won them. They came around. It's a miracle. By God's grace, God used the many tears letter, which we don't have, to bring about a change of heart. Conflict in life can be really difficult, but isn't that what we yearn for? We yearn for there to be restoration, dramatic transformation, unity. Uh, We should expect in the church there to be difficult conversations. Whenever you do anything significant with a bunch of different people, whether it's getting a new housemate, getting married, starting a business, anytime you go in with other people on a shared adventure, there's going to be conflict. That's natural. The question is not will there be conflict, But how will you deal with that conflict? And I I really want to recommend this book by Ken Sand called The Peacemaker. Because his main insight is that conflict is not something to be, like, avoided. Because conflict can be an opportunity, he says, to glorify God. Every conflict you come into can be an opportunity to glorify God, if you think about it. Because in conflict, sometimes our rough edges are smoothed off. Sometimes our reliance on God is broadened and strengthened and deepened. So don't feel like it's a defeat when you have to have a difficult conversation. But ask God, how can I glorify you in this situation? We're not told what the sin was that Paul was confronting. We, we can assume it was pretty serious. Right? Back in 1 Corinthians, he had to tell them um, they were doing the wrong thing about a guy who was sleeping with his stepmom. Right? So this is not a church that's kind of without its issues. It was something serious, and Paul has to do something about it. My dad has a, um, a motto, a maxim, which is, you, you are what you tolerate. And I think he's right. You are what you tolerate. He wrote, wrote a book recently. I'm a very proud son, so I'll talk about it. He led a Christian organization for 25 years. He had, by the end of it, like 4,500 staff. He knew something about conflict. And he tells a story about a senior, high-performing executive 
who um, one day belittled a subordinate in front of the team in a meeting. And the star player executive didn't take very kindly to being told that his behaviour was unacceptable. In fact, he resigned. Now, in the book, um, Dad writes, from an operational performance point of view, his departure was a loss to the organisation. He was a star player. But if he had stayed and there had not been repentance or restoration, the outcome would have been far worse. It would have been tantamount to saying that his behaviour is accepted and acceptable. We are what we tolerate. See on a hill, we know what we stand for. We stand for Jesus. We know what Jesus stands for. And so we cannot be okay with sin in our community or our lives. Right? We can't be okay, say, with a, a member of our gospel community telling a sexist, racist, homophobic joke. We can't be okay with that. We can't be okay with members of our community breaking their marriage vows, abandoning their responsibilities because they found a better offer elsewhere. We can't be okay with those in positions of power using their power against the people that are meant to be caring for to harm them. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, didn't Jesus say something like, do not judge? Yeah, absolutely. But Paul's not judging. There's a crucial difference. Paul's not trying to cancel the guy. He's trying to restore the guy. And that's a difference. When you cancel someone, you just want them to like not exist anymore. Right? You're writing them off. Paul wants the guy to be restored. You see that? Because immediately, verse um, 6 of chapter 4, for this guy, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and confront him. So forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That's not cancelling. That is looking to restore him. Now, yeah, you need a difficult conversation. You need repentance. But the goal of that is always to forgive. And we've been sold a lie when we think that the, that the alternative is turn a blind eye or be judgmental and, and awful. Right? You're not loving me by turning a blind eye to my sin. But you should be looking not to cancel me, please, but to restore me, to restore our relationship. Anyone whom you forgive, says Paul, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be outwitted by Satan. So friends, 2 Corinthians records for us a really difficult moment in a church uh, life, a conflict that I think is simultaneously ugly and beautiful. It's ugly because it's just a normal, difficult, tearful conflict that comes up with sin. But it's beautiful because Paul was able to glorify God in the way he dealt with the conflict and win the church back to the gospel and back to reconciliation. It won't always end for us like this, but we always have a choice to glorify God in our conflicts. What drives us to do this? The band comes up. What drives us to work for glory of God and to forgive even when we don't get much back? Well, Paul mentions that it is God and his glory. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. In other words, God has already forgiven Paul. 
God has forgiven Paul. He's experienced the grace of God, and so have we. That's what drives us to forgive in the midst of conflict. That's what drives us to extend grace. There there won't always, I should say, be reconciliation, and there won't always be trust. You can't always trust somebody who you've forgiven, particularly, I should say, in situations where there's been uh, abuse of power or dynamic of control. But when we choose to forgive, choose to work for reconciliation, we glorify God because we actually illustrate in the gospel, aren't we, that when we were sinners, when we were disbelieving, disrespecting, disobeying God, he turned around and offered mercy. How? In Jesus. He sent Jesus to earth humbly, not to wield a big stick, but to offer forgiveness for all. If you've experienced that, then that is what drives you to offer it to others. Anything else will wear you out. We offer the hand of grace because we have received the hand of grace. Let me pray. Father, this letter is not to us, but it certainly is relevant. It is certainly relevant for us. Thank you for the way that you were glorified through this conflict glorified in the way that sin was confronted and friction taken head on, glorified in the forgiveness and restoration that Paul brought about by his letters and his visits. Please, Father, would you help us to so dwell on the grace of God that we have received that we would be able to offer it to others because he first forgave and restored us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.